The key is in shaping the rules of the game and also making them as simple as possible. And if you can apply that familiar, simple structure and simple rule set to everybody in your business, you get to a fractal model. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I, I was going to say mad scientists, but they're not, they're engineers. I'm talking to Andrew Home and Julian Wilson of Matt Black Systems. They run a very strange business. They've gone from 30 people to five people. They've gone from balance sheet was at zero, business was in crisis, to, they told me, but they wouldn't let me say how much money they've got in the bank, enough And it's a two-year journey of liberation. They don't want the hands of their employees. They just want the minds. They talk about the chaos, trying to control the chaos with traffic lights. They try to control the chaos with command and control. They spent hundreds of thousands of pounds implementing lean and agile, but somehow the organism that was their business was unresponsive until they started to change some stupid rules. And that triggered an awakening in their employees. Their employees started to think for themselves. And they've taken this to the logical conclusion of one-person businesses. So their company now consists of a network of one-person businesses. It's an amazing story. It's definitely the longest episode we've ever done. It runs just over an hour. As I write the intro, I'm not quite sure how long it's going to be when, when we've done the final edit. But it's absolutely fascinating. You might have read about Morningstar or talked about what they did at Zappos or Holacracy, but these guys have done it in you know, manufacturing where people used to clock in and clock out. And so this wasn't an organization full of people doing mental work. This was, this was an organization full of people who sort of turned up and got told what to do, like lots of businesses around the world. And these guys have transformed this business and are now so if you're, an, if you're the owner of a business, how about your business runs itself and not a bit better than when you're there, but 200 times better than when you're there? What if you didn't need to sell it to retire? What if you could get your employees to step up, not step back from the challenge of running the business more efficiently than you do? So if that's you, then you should absolutely listen to this conversation as Julian and Andrew describe in quite detail 
what they did to get to where they've got to. And also they've written a book about it, 500%. And they've also got a website where they've got a whole load of uh, assets to help you on the journey. But an absolutely fantastic conversation. And then I stopped recording and we went on to talk for another 45 minutes. So we we could have had episode two out of today's conversation. But I really enjoyed chatting to these guys. Fantastic. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Andrew Hill. And I live in Winchester at the moment. I'm originally from Scotland. Um, and I'm an engineer. Been engineering all my life in some form or of another. And um, I met a business partner, Julian Wilson, in 2003. And we went on a rather fantastic journey. Yeah, hi. I'm Julian Wilson. I'm the director of a little business, small business in the south of England, making aerospace components, instruments and staff for the cockpit. It's a family business, been running since the 1970s. It grew like mad, and then we hit a plateau in the 1990s. And that's when I met Andrew in the early part of the, uh, of the this century. And uh, we set about the process of turning it around. And so uh, you grew like mad. What, what sort of revenue or people did you get up to when you, when you sort of hit a plateau? Well, as, as, as the 80s and 90s progressed, uh, our clients wanted to make more use of the real estate within the cockpit. So we were forced down a, a more high-tech route from a, a simple panel with switches onto keyboards and displays and things. Um, and that drove us in elect, towards in, um, electronics and optoelectronics. That drove us towards um, CNC manufacturing and, and CAD design and stuff. So we started off, I don't know, with seven or eight people and we ended up with 30 in the end um and the business was quite profitable but boy 90 percent of everything we delivered was late (laughs) and our customers were screaming at us about this now funny enough we weren't actually the worst in the industry um but you know so they, they they wanted to stick with us but boy did they want us to change well and not only that they had low expectations of many of your competitors as well. Otherwise, you may be if not still be here to, to talk about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So, I, you know, it's a big thank to our customers and our clients for sticking with us through what was pretty poor performance by us all. And, Andrew, that's where you came in. Yes. So um, I was actually doing um, another business turnaround at the time. And um, Julian was a supplier to us. And I kind of came to the end of that uh, turnaround project and Julian said, would you want a job? And um, I'd been in corporate most of my life and I was kind of swithering, should I go back to corporate or should I carry on in this turnaround madness? And um, so I met Julian, had a long chat with him. I thought, yeah, okay, let's have a go. And um, fundamentally, underneath it all, it was a good business there. I, I knew that. Um, I, you know, I could see the balance sheet, the P and L account. It looked, it looked good, but I could also see the problems, and the customers were upset. So, to reiterate what Julian said, you know, in terms of our, what I call the the, the contract metrics of quality, delivery, price, and control, if they weren't flashing red, they were certainly flashing orange, and uh, the business was was it was really suffering. And I could hear it in the phone calls because, you know, as a customer, I would sit with Julian doing a design and I could hear irate customers in the background <laughs> basically getting angrier. So anyway, I joined up in 2003 early on and um, we did the classic thing, of course. We looked, I looked at the business. I did a kind of strategic overview of it, produced a plan and said, OK, presented it to the directors and said, OK, this is what we need to do, which 
you know, I had some quite in-depth experience of lean um, and some experience of agile as well. But we said, well, we'll have a we'll have a go with lean. So we actually brought two lean consultants in under an initiative which was uh, run by the industry. So the industry paid half. In fact, one of our customers, an extremely good customer of ours, paid half, and we paid the other half. And they had uh, an effect on what we did and did start to improve things. What happened then was we decided to employ that these lean consultants after that program had finished and carried on deploying lean throughout the business, which we thought, yeah, that was good. It was having the desired results. We weren't seeing it, though, in terms of financial performance, but we were seeing an effect in terms of the performance that the customer was seeing. So at least that was something. So we spent quite a lot of money, in fact, a huge amount of money on these programs. Quarter of a million pounds we spent on programs, lean and agile programs that we put in place. And after all, the business definitely looked smarter. It was definitely more polished. But actually, as we looked at the numbers and the balance sheet and the PL account, they hadn't improved. So as long as the people were in the business, the consultants were in the business, we got an improvement. But the minute we removed them from the business, the business seemed to drift back as if they, the business had a sort of sweet spot in it. It's the most extraordinary thing. It's like the structure of the business we had seemed to elicit these behaviors or, or to encourage certain behaviors. And so these behaviors... We pushed, it's like a pendulum, you push the pendulum away to get an improvement, you take that motive force away, and the pendulum swings back again. And what, what types of, um, what, Julian, what types of behaviours were they, do you think? That's difficult to say, what type of behaviours. What was curious about it was, in aggregate, they were back to exactly the place they were before. Okay, <clears throat> so this is a bit like, you know, a waiter carrying a tray of drinks and falling down the stairs and not spilling a single drink on the way down. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and you think, well, I, I, it's possible, but I don't, I, I don't see how, I don't see the mechanism by which, you know, the, the productivity of our organisation had returned to exactly the same point. It was really curious. Had you swapped out some of the, were the, were the same people there? At the at the yes. end of the process, yeah, okay, yeah, the same, the same people were there, mm. the same machinery, but as Andrew says, it was more polished and more slick. You know, it had you know painted floor and yellow stripes on the floor, that sort of thing. And when we looked at the numbers, we you know we we went over it because if you look at all the lean tools, they're great, they're, they're brilliant things. There's not a, a criticism you could have of the lean tools. It's just that they weren't really delivering on the bottom line. So, for example, what would happen is we would improve one area and then to improve flow where we thought our, our bottleneck was, but it would never improve the overall flow. So you ended up just producing more as you improve the flow in one area, it would then appear as inventory in another area, in another area waiting to be processed. So that by the time you went from one area to another area to another area, the net effect was zero other than increased inventory. But, but the, the point being that somehow in aggregate, in aggregate, they ended up at the same number. And then we started really unpicking the numbers and looking, you know, we make a, 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 a range of different products and occasionally they would repeat. 
And when they repeated, we could see that the productivity each time it repeated was different. So sometimes it took us six hours to make this job and sometimes it took us 16. Even though it's a job you've done before? Even though it's a job we've done before. But interestingly, interestingly, in aggregate, with in the context they were on the day, there was a same throughput as a whole, even though this particular job took six hours one time and 16 hours another time. So it was as if the organization had a target output. And yeah. no, matter how, no matter what they had on their desk, they flex their productivity to meet that target every time. Parkinson's law. Or even human nature, because there's one of the reasons that Uber gives a, a surcharge when it's raining is because cab drivers typically have in their heads, I'm going to, I don't know, earn £350 a day. And when they get to £350 a day, they go home. So they go out at the same time and they go home whenever they get to 350 quid and it's a good day if they get there early. And so there's a human, there, there is this human behavior thing about, about, about what do we think? One of, one of the clients we were working with uh, a couple of years ago, they had a set of, inside their business, they had a set of hours that a task should take and the tasks always took that long. Over the summer, they brought some students in and the, the only thing they didn't do is they didn't tell them how long the tasks should take. And the students were 300% more efficient than the people who knew how long the tasks should take, right? And so, so I absolutely can see uh, how, exactly what you're talking about. But you asked, what were the behaviours? What behaviours were different? And it's really difficult to, to, to come down you know, in detail to the specific behaviours which are slowing things down or speeding things up. And then, so you, you did lean, then you did agile, I think you said? Yeah, yeah. So, so and both of these things tend to see the organization as a bit like a machine, like a, a clockwork machine that you put, like a pinball machine, you fire the ball in and it bounces off, the product goes through the system, bouncing off each different department, comes out of the bottom all nicely finished and wrapped up, ready to go to the customer. But what we know now is it's, that's a very poor analogy for a business. They're not money-making machines. You can ask anybody in the organization. They know nothing about money. You say, well, how much is this component you're using? Oh, I don't know. Purchasing department deals with that. I've no idea. Well, how much does the whole thing sell for? I don't know. So you can't expect any of those people to make an informed decision about anything that they're doing because they just don't have the context and the detail. No, it's so... And yet, and yet, they were managing things in such a way that in aggregate, they're meeting this low productivity target every single month. Now, there was a quirk in the data, a wrinkle. Two wrinkles, in fact. One occurred in early summer and the one occurred in late autumn. That was the data of uh, the overtime being worked. Uh-huh. So our productivity didn't seem related to overtime, but there were two peaks in overtime. And then, of course, I realized people were making more money before their summer holidays and making more money for Christmas. <laughs> another, another human nature thing around incentives. Yeah. Now, we'd spent years trying to improve our productivity, and we could, sque- you know, squeezing out an extra 5% would be brilliant. Would You know, dream stuff. But really, we didn't get very far at all, all these programs, all this money. So I thought, 
we we argued about this. I mean, we spent ages arguing about what we were going to do because because every experiment we tried didn't work until we came up with this with this alternative, which was um, a, a, an elegant experiment. Hang on, we, but, but but you got forced into that experiment, didn't you, by some well, circumstances? If I could, if I could just just interrupt you for a minute, because what Julian's going to talk about is after what I call the page thirty-seven moment, the, the moment where we went into this depth of despair. Before that, we why had, is it page thirty-seven? Well, it's just we have a, a, a book. book. Um, it's called Five Hundred Percent. Um, how to pioneers improve productivity or transform productivity, actually. It's available on Amazon. Um, and it's really the story of our journey. Right. Before we got to this page 37 moment in our book, we had deployed Lean yeah, and deployed Agile, but they were patches to an existing model. We hadn't changed our model at all. It was, high, it was still hierarchical, but still a man at the top, and it was still functional. And everybody was in a little box. So we deployed these tools as normal. You know, it was no different from my previous employment. We deployed the same tools in the same way. So we took the current structure and patched it. So because it wasn't very lean, you apply your leanness patch. Because it wasn't very agile, you apply your agile patch. And we did that. And we actually did it quite well to the best of our ability. And you know, from my previous experience, I'd done it in other companies and it, it, it was better than that, to be honest. So we we got the best out of the tools, but it was still it was still looked like, if I can use an analogy, it still looked like an elephant, but it had come up an elephant with go faster stripes on it. It was a fast running elephant. Yeah, it was, it was probably you'd, you'd, and you'd hypnotized, you'd hypnotized it so it thought it was agile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't get a faster elephant, but it was still an elephant. So that we, we reached this kind of crisis point, and I'm going to let Julian take over from here because it kind of. Then it kind of yes. Then we start to really do something different, and I suppose that's the interesting part. So we started to suspect that something else was controlling our business. There was something in our organisation which was creating this this best adaption to it, which was the behaviours we were getting. And whenever the organisation drifted away from from that best adaption, people would, individuals would change their behavior to bring it back in online. Yes. Um, sort so of, we, um, not deliberate, sort of some sort of unconscious, like unconscious sabotage. It's like, it was easier the way we did it before. And we're all just going to sort of not discuss it, but we're just going to get it back to the way it was before. Yes. Fantastic. And it, Dominic, it was definitely not discussed. It, you know, it's great conspiracy theorists, but the truth was, there was just some attractive force to a particular behavior. And even if there was an intermediary behavior to get things to come back to where they were, to get the pendulum to swing back, and then they settle in their old behavior again. So it wasn't intransigent. It was quite adaptive. Anyway, no. <laughs> we invented this experiment. It's like, it's like grabbing a hold of, like grabbing a balloon, and it's like... Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah but, but most organizations you know, have this experience that you fiddle with them. And sometimes the things you expect happen don't happen. And you put a lot of effort in to try to force change in. And when you take that effort away, you know, in lean, they use this euphemism, the grass grows back. Yeah. And when you sit down and think about it, you think, well, 
If it just changed, that'd be okay. But it often grows exactly the way it did previously. <laughs> you know, and it, yeah. it won't. Anyway, yeah. so how's that? Yeah, so we did this experiment, um, pivotal experiment it was, and we announced one day to everybody that um, we were going to ban overtime. Okay, so that went down well. Um, <laughs> however, there was a there was a sweetener in it, and we said, look, we've we've done the calculations, we've worked out how much each individual person has been getting in overtime previously, and we're going to pay them that whether they do the work or not, do the overtime or not. Whether they yeah. do the overtime or not, yeah. Um, and we're going we're going to do this. Now I made up something here. We're going to do this to to reduce the burden of payroll. So we didn't have to calculate the hours people were working and stuff. You know, we we're just going to pay them like the set amount because it didn't change. And people were like, "Oh, you, you know, mm, what? Are you, what is it you're trying to sell me here? What? Are you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you're so, giving um, me something for nothing. Yeah. I'm deeply suspicious." Yeah. So eventually uh, we came to an agreement that in six months' time, if, if they weren't happy, we'd change back to the way it was. So, and we did this big ceremony taking the clocking in machines off the walls so they didn't have cars to put in them anymore. And, and it was all no timesheets. No timesheets. More humane. Yeah. Yeah, yes, it was. Yes. But very deeply suspicious. So the first month, miraculously, nothing changed. Now, that was good because we told all our supervisors and management team not to allow anything to change because the important thing was we kept up the output. We maintained productivity. In month two, something did change. One of the guys um, who had a hobby he was very engaged in um, out of work decided to increase his productivity so that he could go home you know, at five o'clock, but he'd done all the work. Uh-huh. So he sped up so he could go. And at the end of that month, everyone was really good. Did his, did his pay packet look like, you know, it had done with his overtime, even though he wasn't working overtime? And, it, of course, it did. Four months later, so that's five months in all, there wasn't anybody working any overtime, and our output stayed the same. Now, we were, they were doing 20 hours, 20% of their hours as overtime. So our productivity had jumped 20%. So they didn't have to work overtime. And our management and supervisory team were told not to allow anything to change. Yeah, don't change a thing. So in spite of that, productivity jumped 20%, more than it ever jumped before. Fab. Interesting. So and then for free. Yeah, for and it cost it wasn't costing us a penny. We we gave nobody any instruction. There was no leadership, there was no incentives or motivation. It was simply that the new sweet spot. It wasn't having an impact on your bottom line though, was it? Because you the output was the same and you were paying the same, but but you were getting it it was now getting done quicker. So you knew you could do things quicker. At least you'd had a win. No, no, we knew if we changed a rule that we got a reaction. Yeah. Right. And it didn't drift back. Didn't. Very oh, well, it could. Well, it, oh, I see. Yes, yes, because they could work overtime. But in this they case, they, they, they didn't because they didn't because there was nothing in it for them. That's right. And so <laughs> this is really, it was vital, though, because we now found that we had a rule that we changed. And the result was it didn't drift back when you took the momentum of the effort away. So we tried another one. So what we did is, is we had set up previously from the lean experiments four cells, customer-facing cells. 
So we said what we'd like to do is integrate the stores area, yeah, which was kind of like separate, into each of the cells. So we had a meeting with all the guys, and we said, right, okay, when do you think we could achieve that by? I said, oh, a couple of weeks, we'll have that. That's fine, no problem, Andrew. Leave that with us. So two weeks later, came back, no change. So, well, that's not very good. And so we had another little chat around them and said, look, guys, we do need to, we really want to break the stores down, yeah, and we want to integrate the stores into the cell. We want to start this process of changing the way we do business, changing the rule set, changing the physical structure. What can you do? Oh, we'll have that done in two weeks. It's not a problem. Subsequently, two weeks later, chat, 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 no change, another meeting. So eventually, Julie and I, after being through this cycle about four times, decided that there wasn't a solution to this. We had to make the change ourselves, just like in the previous case. So what we did, on a Friday evening, we knocked the stores down physically. We painted the floor, removed all the, 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 the bins and the chairs and everything. It was gone, totally gone. And um, we dumped the stock into each one of the four cells quite randomly because we had no idea who is what. You know what? You know what? I've, I've, it's like, I bet you left on Sunday, high-fived each other and said, this is going to be fun tomorrow. <laughs> but it didn't take us that long. It took us, honestly, it took us no more than what, four or five hours? No yeah. problem. And, and, and previously, four weeks, like four weeks, nothing had happened. No, 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 eight weeks, nothing had happened. Eight weeks. Nothing. Okay. So anyway, we'd done that job. And so we came in Monday morning, and there was the store manager and assistant sitting in a chair where the store had been, apart from there's no store. Nothing. So we just, we just left them all, because they're all you know, running around, obviously trying to adapt to this new environment. So just like they adapted to the new rule, which we put in in overtime, they were now having to adapt to this new, envir- new environment because the store wasn't there. There was no point in going to the store to pick up the components you needed to make whatever you were making because it wasn't there. There's something about here about human nature. You know, the two guys sat in their chairs <coughs> in, ex- in, a, in, a, in a place with no walls on it even, but they sat exactly where they'd previously sat in front of their desks. And so they weren't even close to each other when they were chatting about, oh, what's happened? They were like, you know, <laughs> 30 feet apart, you know, shouting at each other because that, that's where they normally got to every and it's, Monday. And you know what? You see that behavior in animals. So there was a, I was at a talk and there's a, there's a documentary on it or certainly a, a news clip on the BBC. And so the Polish Czech border went through a forest uh, after the Iron Curtain came down and, and it split a herd of red deer. And 30 years later, they took, everything was gone, but the two herds of red deer didn't go over where the border was. And these deer, there's like three generations. And so there's behavior gets really, it's like a sort of that sort of limbic system thing, isn't it? It's not a thinking thing. It's, no, it's um, limbic, absolutely. <clears throat> just, but just the idea of these guys sitting on chairs, eight feet apart, shouting at each other, and not once thinking, what should we do? It just kept reinforcing this point that our invisible manager is simply the power of adaption of each individual. So they found themselves in a, in a circumstance, and they looked around, saw what everybody else's behavior was like, and then they fitted in just like a kid 
fits in with the other kids when they're playing football. They don't need to know the rules and the offside rule. They just need to kick around and have fun and fit in with the others. So there's this, it's led socially. So I say it's not a great way to look at a business as a money-making machine. Like I said, nobody knows about the money. But if you think about it as a social institution, it's far more powerful in terms of how to interact with it. And traditionally, of course, you'd interact it with, with leadership. You'd command people to do things. But the reality is you don't, I would suggest you don't need it. What you need is a coherent structure in which the best adaption is a functional one. So you don't need a leader to tell the kids what to play if you give them a football and some jerseys. They'll just work it out. Well, they might, well the thing is, they might not play football, but they'll do something. <laughs> they will. They will. But you can shape it in such a way that they do play football, yeah. both in terms of the, the physical environment, in other words, the pitch and the goals. And secondly, the rule set you introduce with the referee. The minute you do that, you get football. Yeah. You don't have to then, the manager doesn't have to shout at everybody. You just get football because that's the best adaption to the referee and his whistle and the pitch itself. So rather than leading people, we say put them in an environment where the, the, their best adaption is functional for that environment. Now, the question then is, how does that line up with the business? So we thought about this long and hard. You know, we'd almost got to the point of inventing a whole elaborate game that they could play, which would result in a business. Right. And there's, there's these great uh, rich man, rich dad, poor dad, you know, there's this um, cash flow, cash flow, the cash yeah, flow yeah. game. Yeah, we, we bought it. We bought it recently and played it mm -hmm. as a team before Christmas. Fantastic. So there's an example. And of course, we were racking our heads thinking, well, how could we make a game that that resulted in a, a functional business? And then we thought, oh, this is a bit silly because it's there already, isn't it? Our whole business follows a set of rules, a balance sheet and a P&L account, an investment capital and you know, all the all the rules that we need, we could just apply in inside as it applies to the business as a whole. Yeah. So from outside. Yeah. yeah. So it's like pouring the rules from outside inside. In fact, we start to look at the business and think, it's curious, isn't it? Because you know, we live in a in a world that's that's fundamentally free market. Yeah. And we live in a country with a free market and we live in a city, in, 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 in a town, in a free market. Our businesses operate within a free market. And yet once you come into most businesses, they're like a centrally controlled economy, aren't they? With, with, I mean, there's accounts department, they worry about the money, there's an, and there's a flow. I imagine the USSR ran basically in the same way. North Korea. North Korea. North Korea. That's what it looks like. So somebody's somewhere deciding, you know. Well, and, and you've got and you've got that sort of industrial revolution idea of a mill owner and command and control, and then you've got the education system, which is definitely uh, feels still a bit command and control. And so you you take children age five, and they're in education all the way through their formative years, building behaviour, and then you send them to work. You know, and they still want to put their hand up and ask if they can go to the toilet. It's not yeah. surprising. It's not surprising. And when you take the big picture, you think it is curious because it's quite different to how we live in our own, in, in our wider life. You know, we, we have to go to work and fit in in a centrally controlled economy. But it's a bit like a family model, isn't it? 
where you have a dad and lots of children. Yeah. Yes. And you think well, the, the workers just turn, turn into to children because dad makes them children. Yes. So dad, dad becomes over-responsible and the children become under-responsible. And every time oh. the dad steps forward, the kids step back. And, and you can see why that happens, I think, is a, in a business model, because you get an entrepreneur who's got, I think it was the latest figures, where somebody who creates a business has actually isn't a 21-year-old kid writing code. They're somebody who's got 12 years' experience in an industry, and they decide to set up their own business. So they've got a depth of expertise, and they're probably selling time for money initially. And they, they hire other people who help them be more efficient selling time for money. And so they're the smart one. They know all the answers. The people they hire aren't so smart, don't know all the answers. And so you build that in very, very early. And then new people join and it gets bigger. And quite often that's why businesses don't get past sort of one and a half, two million. Because, because that command and control thing just stops the business growing. So effectively, there's a, there's a bandwidth problem, isn't there? With a guy yeah. who's running it. Yeah, you know, totally. He or she can't cope with the amount of information coming to them, the decision rate making rate, and then the issuing the commands out to the right place quick enough as the business grows. It just all grinds to a halt. I find where you've got two founders, maybe it gets to two and a half million because the two people have slightly more yeah. bandwidth. And I think that's exactly what it is. It's just that input output thing. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. And this is a, this is, Overcome by a networked organization. So, so, what, so what, about, did, what did you do? <laughs> what did you do? Well, we, first of all, we, started, we started getting rid of every single rule that we... Elective rule. Elective rule yeah. that was, was creating um, behaviors that weren't aligned. So we talked about it over time. We had a huge disconnect between the contracts that the business entered into and the behaviors on the ground. So people weren't motivated to satisfy a contract. They were, if anything, motivated just to satisfy their employment contract. You know, keep out of trouble, you know, crank a handle don't, and, and, and go home. Do enough not to get fired, live to fight Do another day. Not to get but fired. In yeah. fairness to them, you know, they had a, a time-based contract, you know, and they were paid for theirs, they were at work. It was really up to the business as to what they did with the hours that the employee gave. The employee was said, well, what do you want me to do? I'm here, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm contracted from eight in the morning till five at, you know, in the evening. You, choose, you tell me what to do and I'll get on with it. And of course, it, it, it's that time-based culture that we have this, that really is the problem because when the contract comes in the door, it doesn't say time on it. It's got nothing to do with time. It says, you deliver that to me and I'll give you this much many pounds back. And as long as you've got that disconnect between time, yeah, in, in, it's like a, you have to have this kind of adaption, a conversion. And actually what we did was we said, no, we've got to get rid of all this time structure yeah, and put in money structure, a value structure. Well, that decision was actually critical because it drove a completely different bunch of measures and metrics in our business. So we started off with these measures and metrics so I'll give you an example, the, the, the metrics, the contract metrics, which faced, ex, faced externally are the quality, delivery, price, and control. So that these are just contract measures as far as a customer or supplier or any contract is, is concerned. We had internal measures, we saw, which was all about in, enhancing uh, prosperity, which is about salary and bonus, forming contracts, orders, 
satisfying contracts, sales, and finally success, profit. Great, dead simple. And we had all we had these in place. But the minute we tried to do something with the business to actually chop it up, we lost that these measures. So for instance, the business as a whole was measured in this way. But when you went to the lean cell, it yep. wasn't. Ah, okay, was right. Part of the business as a whole, but wasn't measured with these critical eight measures, which we had started with. And you could do that because each of those cells was serving a different customer group. Yes. So what we started to do was say, right, well, for this cell, we want to get these eight critical measures and metrics from each cell. What do we do? And if we're going to do that, then we, we had to start to integrate as much as we can into these cells of the functions that lay out with the cell. So the first oh, move was the stores story. Second move was going to do your purchasing. So every cell is going to do their own purchasing. We're going to integrate the centralized purchasing function into each cell. And that was a story in itself. <laughs> we had that was fun, especially when one guy ordered 13 years of glue syringes and the oh. juggernaut turned up. <laughs> but you know what the thing is you just gotta you just gotta take that on the chin haven't you you do right it, you know wasn't ma- it wasn't malicious it wasn't and he said look i get a benefit from for buying this many yeah and, and say you it's it costs, about discount. yeah about this case it's you know it's two pence cheaper per syringe <laughs> well i do better out of that <laughs> you know in terms of, so that's what he did now of course we have to resolve that problem and we did resolve it but there was, this was all growth. You know, it, it, it's easy to laugh at it. But in fact, the organization grew from that, from these mistakes. And people, you know, they might laugh about it. You know, the juggernaut turning but, up with 13 years but, of glue stretches. But the thing is, that story becomes a legend. It becomes a new yeah, legend exactly. in your business. And the fact that the guy didn't get fired and the fact that he was trying to do the right thing, which was to reduce the cost of syringe by 2p, all of that becomes a story which changes uh, changes the set point. Yeah, absolutely. Because it? it, it's, you know, once you've given, well, my experience is once you've given people freedom to start thinking, they don't want to, they don't want you to take that freedom to think back off them. No. Correct. Although we did have a little bit of, some people didn't want to change. They were intransigent. And as, as, we demanded more of people and we paid them significantly more. We did have one or two saying, I'll be happy to give the money back if only I can go back to yeah. my old behaviors. Yes, because um, it's look, it's it, there's something, you know, there's something sort of, I, it's you know, there are times when you think you, there's a struggle and you think, wouldn't it be nice to just get up in the morning and go to work and sort of randomly fill eight hours a day without having to think too much and go to the pub and come home. And, and that there was no cognitive thing going, going, this, this whole thing is just completely pointless. You just sort of went through like, you know, it's almost like, you know, is there a drug we can take so that you just, it not, you have it, none of this stuff bothers you. And for those people, all of a sudden you're messing with their, their status quo. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to think for myself. Can I just, yeah, so that's not my job. I'm not paid to do that. I'm paid, yeah, well, to, I'm but, paid to do what dad tells me. Yes, well, that's okay because there's plenty of dads. They go work for somebody else, don't they? Now, but that's interesting, you see, because, boy, it's difficult to, to run that old structure. It's really expensive. 
you know, having a boss, a leader, and a management and supervisory team and an administrative team, often they're, what, 20% of the workforce? Perhaps more, perhaps 25%. Well, 30, 30, 35% often. Brilliant. Now, they're also paid more often. They often oh. get offices and computers. <laughs> and, I mean, their own, their own headphones. Um, <laughs> With a little microphone, yeah, just like like Madonna, um, <laughs> and uh, as a consequence, they can be you know fifty percent of the labour cost. Yeah, that okay. Easily. So now, if they don't add have a lot of value, they're not really worth having around. It's an expensive model, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, totally. But but it's well, just it's just the way. Everybody expects it's a bit like your guy sitting on the chair in the it's in the storeroom. It's just how people expect it to be. So it yeah. it just yeah. is. Now it is. So so we eventually talk about our organization now as having devolved as much as it of the administrative and even the fiduciary responsibilities of the organization right down into everybody. And we use an analogy. We say traditional businesses are like the are organized like traffic lights on a junction. There's a management team, the traffic lights, who give instructions, you know, the changing lights, and they run to a, like a, an organizational model, which is held in that green box on the side of the road, which deals with all the logic. There's a man in there, do you know that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's, He's against colors. you. He's against you. Yeah. And when he sees you coming. <laughs> yeah. He does so, um, and our organization devolves that to the to the individuals in the organization using the same set of rules that's on the business as a whole. Now think about our organization like a roundabout. So the drivers aren't different. They're the same type of people. It's just that when the driver comes up to a roundabout, he knows he participates or she participates in the working out of the traffic flow. On a traffic light control junction, you can sit there having a little shave or doing your makeup. Mobile phone. Because you can be switched off because you delegate that to the, well, to the management and administrative team who are the traffic lights. There's, there's a fantastic YouTube clip of a road junction in India where, where exactly that, in the UK, or, you know, you'd, you'd, have, you'd have traffic lights. And in India, there's trucks and ox carts and hundreds yeah. of motorcycles. And they're all not killing each other. I think road traffic yeah. deaths are slightly higher in India than they are. But do you know what I mean? Like there's a huge, there's a YouTube clip and nobody dies. Like you feel as though somebody's about to die at any moment, but at least everyone's participating. Nobody's doing their makeup. Yeah. So so roundabouts flow 30% more traffic and have fewer accidents, and the accidents they have are less serious. So and they're invented in 1905. Netherlands. So the point is that if you get the right set of rules. You don't need command and control and a leadership structure like you don't need that in our free market. You don't need that on the high street. And what we say is you don't need that within the business either if you've got the right set of rules. So you need to have a different structure. Yeah. So roundabouts are different from traffic lights. You can't have the same structure. I mean, if you really, really wanted a leader, you could get somebody to stand in the middle of the roundabout shouting at traffic. Well, what I love about that analogy is that actually that's exactly what the managers were doing in your business. Right. That sort of, you know, that, that, that you, you were running in, you were running a thing, you were passing it on to them. They were saying, yes, no, we'll go and do that. And, and just nothing happened slowly. 
Because, because in fact, there was, there was no response between what they said and the cars going round the roundabout. Absolutely. So what we didn't understand at that time was we didn't even understand there was a roundabout and people were following um, the circumstances to, to, to best, the, the, the best adaption to the circumstance they were in. And we thought they were compliant and conforming. And they weren't, not at all. They were, their focus was on something else quite different which we called our invisible manager. And once we worked out that secret, we just kept changing the rules until it looked just like the rules that apply to the business as a whole, powered down to each individual. And so when I think about, uh, you know, business, building businesses with agility and some of the businesses that I've built, what we've actually done to keep the businesses uh, focused on the customer and to stop bureaucracy setting in, we've actually built them on those sort of, structure cell structures and tried yeah. to and whenever a client says oh we're going to have a cent we're going to have centralized services just my heart I, you know i because i just they they think it's going to be more efficient but immediately the people in centralized services just care less and are so disconnected from the metrics and the customer that you know you've just got to um if you can push it down it's a different way to do it so so just to just to pick pick that point out because it's a, a really excellent point in a roundabout in this essence every car has a controlling mind in it in a traffic light there's only one controlling mind so if you take that analogy and apply it to business a traditional business has one controlling mind at the top the boss they call him and what we wanted was everybody in the business to be a controlling mind so then what did the structure have to look like if every single person in the business was a controlling mind? So you had to go back up. We use the term a fractal, but you had to go up another fractal scale to look at the business as a whole, work it out, and then apply that whole to the individual. And then you've got something which doesn't require that centralized management, that command and control. What's the timescale from your zero bank balance and changing changing the overtime rule to having a fully autonomous business that you're not running? What, was the, what was the time like? Two years, okay. I think, I mean, it's difficult to, to really put your finger on that because we, we were kind of strutting around a bit blind because we didn't have all these, you know, when you look back on it, it was all ragingly obvious. We're just poking around the dark trying to say, look, we've got this invisible manager. Somehow we've got to shape it. We need to find a structure like a roundabout. Yeah. And we need to, we don't know what it looks like. And so we're, we're making error after error, and then we're correcting the errors and putting another idea in place, and that has the right uh, effect. We're looking at our metrics and measures, our, our external metrics, our internal measures. We're seeing what they're doing, and we're, we're getting somewhere. But to start with, it was pretty slow. So I'll give you I'll give you an exact example of that. Andrew talked about the syringe story. Um, so we had a, a PL account on each cell, so we could have like a bonus, a profit bonus scheme for them. But critically, we didn't have a balance sheet, so it didn't matter how much cash they absorbed in their cell, which is why the guy ordered all the stock. Yep. Well, he, so, and he didn't have to, and he didn't have to pay for he didn't have to pay for storage. Absolutely. Nor did you have to pay for the capital. And that yeah. was our fault, wasn't it? That was our problem because we failed to put in 
the normal things of having a balance sheet and a P&L account. Yes. So you've got to put them in, then you've got to teach him what they mean. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. do you know, funny They're enough. They're pretty good at that. <laughs> well, because people know how much they earn and uh, they buy houses and cars and they go to Waitrose or Lidl or wherever they shop at. And like people do this stuff all the time. They do it at home. So, so you've got these people working in investment banks who control billions of pounds worth of bank capital investing in the markets to try and squeeze the, 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 the last little cent out of it. And yet they're not allowed to go to their own um, uh, office supplies store cupboard and take out a ream of paper because they're not trusted with that. So, so I would argue that if you pay somebody 30 grand a year, you, you clearly expect them to be able to manage that at home. So surely they should be able to manage 30 grand of the company's money every year you know, and look after that responsibly. And often they're more responsible you know, with the company's money than they are their own money. Yep. I've seen that time. I've seen that time and time again. Yeah, exactly. So, so we started to think to ourselves, you know, what, what systems apply to the business as a whole? So you talked about not being able to measure departments, which have got very different <laughs> functions and that's true, but we introduced an internal market. So the, each function could trade with another. Okay. And internally and externally. So, so that was a revelation as well. So we had an accounts department who were the least able to understand the financial implications of their behavior. It was really curious. So the guys on the production floor quickly realized that the more money they saved and the more efi- efficient and effective they were, the more money they could be paid. Yeah. The accounts department would charge everybody for writing out an invoice or 15 quid an invoice a 15 quid an invoice yeah so and eventually people would say well, what's what's involved in writing out an invoice and it's all quite complicated it's very complicated oh yeah oh you wouldn't understand that yes. <clears throat> numbers and all sorts of oh, things oh yes and of course some of them would say well i can do that i'll just you know give us a number i'll write it out and send the send it to the customer and then i'll chase it if they don't pay it pretty quickly what happened they realized that, that they could nest that activity in their normal day-to-day activity without any extra burden, and they saved themselves 15 quid on each invoice. And so the accounts department department disappeared? They went bust. Interestingly enough, what happened then, the accounts department said, well, look, we're we're processing less invoices now. So they put the price up. So they put the price up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. They they hadn't quite grasped how this worked at all, had they? All the people, the accounts department, the one who really, really struggled to understand that they couldn't just keep sharing their costs over the in, the work they had. But you see, they were as well, and they had a P&L account, so they but went but there's, but it's, there's two things that co- occur to me. One is when I did a, my MBA, one of the case studies is a business up in Sheffield called Tinsley Wire, who kept, re- kept cutting off their least profitable products. But because they just then put the, the overhead across a fewer fewer <laughs> products, they, they never got profitable and they couldn't quite understand why. And then when you look at it, you, when you look at it like from the outside, you go, how could they not know? But then the other thing you've got is Jeff Bezos did exactly that. The reason that Amazon has Amazon Web Services and it has Amazon Pay is because Bezos looks at anything which is a cost and he says, look, if we just do this ourselves and we don't try and sell it to people, it'll be rubbish. Because that, you know, so we have to go and we have to go and try and sell it to other people because otherwise we w- it won't be good enough for us to want to buy it. And so That's that right. internal market is exactly, you know, you're doing what 
Amazon does in a in a tiny way. Yeah, but in the end, our, our goal was really to activate and engage the minds in our business. It was like with every pair of hands came a free mind, and up to that point, we hadn't been using them. Which is the opposite of uh, Henry Ford, who said he just yeah, wants yeah. the hands and he didn't want the minds. Yeah, we wanted the minds. In fact, we didn't need the hands. This <laughs> wanted the brain. But didn't you think? Don't you think though that? I think that old Henry Ford model probably works quite well in China, where people are relatively cheap and things are relatively expensive, and and people are quite conforming and compliant. Now, in a in what they call the knowledge economy in 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 the West, I think it's quite difficult to make money using that old model. It's quite oh, yeah. difficult to instruct people to be creative. Right, here it is. Clock in, start being creative. Go. <laughs> you know, you can start for tea break and go to the toilet. You know, it's Ten just, minutes. Yeah, you know, it's, I've got the clock on you. And, I mean, if you're creative, surely that's going to be the first thing that you withhold when you feel like, like a slave. Yes. Well, if there's any fear at all, people are unable to be creative in an atmosphere where they feel oppressed or there's any any fear and so that whole sort of clock watching even super being supervised you know kills people's creativity yeah and i come back to that point you don't need to supervise every shop on the high street because they've simply got a set of rules that says if we behave in this way we can make a good profit and so where did you end up right so you started making no money and you had 30 people like where are you so at the end of two did, years, where had you got to? The accounts team had all gone. They'd gone bust. So what we got to is the main motivator of this was we wanted to retain our contract metrics and contract measures. So we, in order to do that, we created a central market. and We had about, let's say, seven internal cells with two people in them. Okay. So these cells were were really quite disparate now. They had kind of a quasi P&L account, but no real balance sheet. And this was about, let's say, after a year, to make it simple. Not, I can't really remember the, the timescales, but it wasn't far off that. So we imagine these seven cells, each with two people in it. But we noticed something in this, and it was just a really strange behavior. It was a kind of dynamic, a social loafing dynamic appeared. <laughs> <laughs> love that. I, love, I love that term, social loafing. It's just no, no, brilliant, no, it's isn't really it? It's weird. You get one person who work, be working really hard, and the harder they work, the other person just kept stepping back. <laughs> it really was the most, you know, and in some place, it was really obvious. I see that in offices. Yeah. At about 35 people, everybody stops putting their cups in the dishwasher. Right? Yeah. And there's, yeah. there's, there's, there's a, you know, up until a certain tipping point, everybody's clearing up their own shit. Then all of a sudden, I don't know, it's like bloke, the broken window thing in New York with the, you know, the crime rate. It's, it's, you have to have zero tolerance and then you have to somehow enforce that. But if, if you're trying to enforce it, but you just, it's, it's just another one of these sort of human behavior things, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It's extraordinary. And it's actually, there's a guy called Max Rindelman and he noticed way back in a hundred years ago that with tug of war teams, Oh, and yeah, the eighth, the eighth person adds no- Yeah, as you increase the number of people, the, the average force per person reduces. And, and yes. that's what we were seeing. So by the time you get to eight <clears> people, <throat> you've lost an entire person. Yeah. Yeah. 
in a tug of war team. Yeah, it's just but incredible. We were seeing isn't it? this dynamic in front of us, and we didn't really know what to do about it because we we kind of we're looking at it. And we say, well, if we increase the team size, then we're just going to go back to a worse dynamic that we've got at the moment. But if we reduce the team size, it's going to be chaos. We're going to end up with just selfish behaviour all over. It's going to be appalling. And also a lot of duplication of, of activities. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we're having all purchasing done in each cell, and it all seemed very illogical to us. You know, you know this is just madness. I mean, it, it seems to be where we're being led to, but it's madness. But we didn't give up there, of course. We did another experiment. There's one thing in common with everything we do. It's just we do an experiment and we see the effects. And sometimes when you do an experiment, very unusual things happen, emerge from it. So we decided to do this experiment. We took one cell and we said, right, I'm going to split that one in two. And so we had one person per cell. And that one person yeah, was doing purchasing, selling, designing, making, accounting, um, health quality, and health and safety. They were doing everything. This is not possible. It's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, but, but actually, <clears throat> in truth, of course, every small business owner does exactly the same. Yeah. Plumber yeah. does the same. Yeah. So we did this experiment, and bingo, it was phenomenal. I mean, it, it was it really was transformational. And some people, the productivity lifted two, three times. I mean, we, we weren't looking at 20% now. We were looking at multiples. Um, with a balance sheet on them and a P&L account, they got to have a profit bonus, and a proportion of the profit they earned, they kept not to take home with them, but to reinvest in oh, their activities. Oh, nice. We yeah, call that yeah. an investment bonus. So they get some of the business's capital to play with. And what they would do then is improve processes and equipment, and they'd improve, they'd get training. they do all sorts of things with that capital. The proviso was it had to have, be associated with uh -huh. future income, had to be an investment. They couldn't just convert yeah. it into wages somehow. And what we saw then was a tremendous amount of change taking place. But, but fewer people. At, at each, at each yes, stage, yes. there's fewer and fewer people because some people have opted out. So, um, yes. Well, one, people would opt out also um, because we have this internal, internal market. If the others subcontracted less to them, they had less work. And and people and you could and you could subcontract outside of the business as well, and that was everybody. That was the individual decision. So, if if, if your if your internal cell was no longer the best price, or quality, uh, or I, delivery, I, or control, yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. love lo love you dearly, but I'm going to go and buy it from yeah. somebody else. Now, when those when those people went into crisis, um, in those days, we used to go in with tr training, support, rescue, and recovery. And we quickly identified those areas of the business that those areas of operations that they weren't participating in. And we say, okay, this is where your problem is. So an example would be that they were totally dependent upon internal customers. So we'd say, look, you're a machine yes. shop. Well, let's go out into the market and see what we can. So you go out into the market, they yeah. do quotes, and then they'd find they weren't competitive outside the business either. So then you'd have to go back to the actual machining they were doing and saying, okay, look, perhaps you're not as efficient a machiner, productive as machiner as you, you think you might be. And this is all a coaching conversation. So not only have you gone, instead of the two of you having to have all of the smarts, 
you've now got a hive mind having thousands of these little decision points like you know looking it's like david brailsford with team sky it's like you've got the whole organization looking for one percent gain all over the place and 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 then instead of you having to say mate you're a bit shit they're going you're going you're you're coaching you're coaching them to the conclusion which is at least means you don't have to deliver the bad news no and i and and often the changes that people had to make were relatively straightforward but curiously people often choose to leave rather than doing something they were eminently trainable to do and their colleagues were doing it too it was curious Oh, I don't want to do that. Well, but you see, you, but but you see that with surgeons who say to people, yeah, "I can't operate until you lose a bit of weight," and they go, "All right, I won't have the operation. <laughs> You're going to die." Yeah, I know it's yeah, okay. I've, I've, <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's sort of mind blowing. It's like they say it out loud as if it's a stream of consciousness that makes yeah. sense, and it doesn't matter how many times they say it; it doesn't make any yeah. more sense. Death or cake, death or cake. So, cake, cake. I've heard about this. <laughs> And cake's better. I've thought about it a lot, yeah. cake. <laughs> I'm often thinking about cake, so I, I don't really want to give that up. It's one of my hobbies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's change for you, isn't it? Because yeah. it's the fear of the unknown. Because people don't really understand what's going to happen, what's the outcome of all this. Yeah. And it's, it's a fearful place. But we're not asking people to do anything that a small business owner wouldn't do. Or, or that one of your one of their colleagues isn't doing. That's right. That's right. It's not as if it's it's not as if you're saying, "Hey, you see that you see that high wire between this building and next door? No safety net. Just go and nip across the high." None of that. It's like, yeah, it's relatively straightforward. Yeah. I mean, some people would in, in the early days would say, "You know, I'm not willing to use a telephone." And I'd say, "Well, I I know you've got a mobile phone. Oh yeah, yeah, but that's only for receiving calls. I never make calls with it." But you see, I, I I was with a client last week and the conversation we were having is if you're on a Zoom call, should you have your meet should you have your camera on? And some people are saying, Oh, we don't want to use we don't want to have our camera on when it's like it, that's like what would you come to a meeting and put a paper bag on your head? <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, it's like it's like just cause just because you say it doesn't make it sensible. And then it's you know, well, I, but I might be in my pajamas. Are you in your pajamas? No. Okay, well, what what is going on? It's just incredible. It is. It is curious. So, um, yeah, we, we. I could tell you a thousand stories about that. But you know, to, to shortcut it, though, we ended up with the internal market was super important, so that we could judge people on their PL account and balance sheet rather than some productivity of that actual operations. So, like, you can compare the the, the baker and the candlestick maker on the high street just using their P&L account and balance sheet. You don't need to look at how good they are at their particular operation. And our theory was, if everyone in the organization is now productive, because we didn't, end, we ended up with no management and supervisory or administrative team, they were all gone. If everybody in the organization was profitable, the organization would be profitable. Yeah. If we, each person was, um, was doing well with the capital that they were investing, then the whole business would do it, would be yeah. good with it. And we had probably half of our working capital got rejected out once we started charging people interest on the capital they were deploying. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they, suddenly got, suddenly the whole lot of things changed. In the old days, everyone was always clamoring for new equipment. Um, and it was always the reason why the things couldn't improve because we didn't have the latest equipment or something like that. Yeah. 
And what we saw once was a, a guy would borrow a piece of equipment, he'd try it out and say, yeah, 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 no, it didn't really work. So he was finding it's ways now it's around. His, it's now his decision. Bingo. Yeah, exactly that. And he was, and, 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 and his consequence, by the way, his financial yeah. consequence. Yeah. 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 And, that, that, and that's so he went, if he invested in the machinery, if it improved productivity, he'd go home with more money. And if it didn't, he'd go home with less money. Yeah. So we started he, off this journey. We were a relatively low pay employer, but, and people topped up their money with overtime. So let's say that they were extracting, I don't know, 25, 28 grand a year working on the shop floor in our organization. Yeah. Our top paid person earns more than 110 grand now working on the shop floor. Yeah. How many, how many, you started this story with 30 people. The managers have all gone. That's 10. The accounts team have gone. How many, how many people are left in the business now? Six or seven. Okay. And so overall is the salary bill lower than it was before not much no it's higher oh okay that excellent so you, you've it's higher and you you had you had no cash in the bank what's the bank balance well, yeah well wow. lots is that lots. something you can't say out loud on put in public I can. lots it's, oh, okay okay it's, it's lots lot. it's lots it's, it's a big number it's, it's a big number yeah. relative to zero yes <laughs> okay but you know, here's a really fantastic thing because, you know, you think we'll have a centralized purchasing department because they're bound to purchase better. We'll get economies of scale and it's really fantastic. It'll be fantastic. It's efficient. It's efficient. They're and, good at the job. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're experts at buying, obviously. Whereas the average person, I mean, there's nothing about buying, well, except oh, you go yeah. shopping all the time. But other than that, <laughs> only, you know, he'll negotiate a building contract with a builder or. You know, he'll choose, he'll choose a wife and all these things you can do at home. But at work, you have to have this professional buyer. Yeah. Well, no. and, 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 what, and the, other, well, the other thing that happens is the first time I ask the professional buyer for something and they're crap at it, I, I, just, I, just, I just shrug my shoulders and give up. One of, one of the, I remember back to my days when I worked in big corporates and um, used to work for Glaxo Welcome. So one of my colleagues who was a drugs rep, you know, she was, she, she, all of her parking was with, with pay meters, with cash. So for six weeks, she documented every, every time she parked and how much money she put in and da, 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 da. And she went to accounts and she said, look, obviously I get no receipts, but here's all my working out. You know, it's 30 quid a week or whatever per parking. And they said, well, we're not interested. We only want a receipt. So you'll have to park in an NCP. So it was 150 pounds. It was 150 pounds a week. So she said, well, seeing as they don't care, I'm having my car valeted every week as well. Because, yeah. like, why should I care? They don't care. They don't I'm care. Caring, yeah. I'm caring way too hard. And so what you end up with is it ends up being, it ends up being the opposite of that efficiency because you, you, just, you just drive that behavior in. Like, once, once somebody makes a bad decision and it becomes infectious, who cares? Yeah. Nobody cares. So, and the, what you're talking about there is the rules of the game. Yeah. Yeah. So the rules of the game, like... Um, if you if you watch cycling, okay, Tour de France, rules of the game, and you see these cyclists and they're pedaling up this hill, and clearly at some point they've fallen off, and they're all grazed down the side of their, you know, the blood dripping off their elbow as they're cycling along. 
Now then think of football, what happens when one of them falls over a bit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're not saying, oh, I'm all right. I'm, 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 I'm going to get up this hill. Blood dripping off them. No, no, they, they're, they're on the back. The fellows with the stretchers come running in. And they're just, it's just the rules of the game and it elicits certain behaviours. Yes. And that's the key. The key is in shaping the rules of the game and also making them as simple as possible. So, you know, let's go back to that roundabout example. What's the rules of the game? It's a simple structure with a simple rule set. And if you can apply that familiar, simple structure and simple rule set to everybody in your business, you get to a fractal model. And, and essentially, that's where we ended up. We ended up in a, a really simple model, yeah, which is very familiar to everybody. You know, it looks like the same as any other business. It's a plumber and electrician. We apply a balance sheet, a profit and loss account. We, we make them responsible for everything they need to do within the business. We make them the controlling mind of the business. And in some case, we took an average. When, before we started this journey, our average turnover was £57,000 per person. Per year. Per year. Yeah. At the end of the journey, yeah, we ended up in excess of 350000 But the best guys are doing £600,000 of turnover. In fact, numbers of years ago, we hit our million-dollar man. A million dollars for one man. So we ended up taking 30 people... <laughs> and the turnover associated with that, and two people do that turnover now. Now, now don't worry, that should not be possible. No. So you have to ask yourself the question, having achieved it, yeah, having gone through the pain and the experimentation of it all, yeah, why do people persist with the old organizational model, both hierarchical and functional? Why? There's a 15 times saving in productivity to be made. And I reckon it's even more than that. I reckon it's 20. Now, you've <clears> underestimated <throat> every time, every step of the way. Every, every time. I two, by the way. Then it was three. <laughs> and it was five. <laughs> then it was ten. Well, no, that, well, was and one of the things, the thing is, you're, if it was two or ten, you were happy at that point. Now, you, now, it's, now, ten, now, you now it's twenty. We were now it's twenty. <laughs> and now it's we, twenty. we thought we'd get twenty. 20% yeah. we thought. Yeah, yeah. and here you are 20 not times. Not 200%, not 500%, yeah. not 1,000%. Unbelievable. Oh, Unbelievable. Yes, and but the, it's, it's interesting. It, so I, the one thing, I, I, it comes back to human nature and what people... That, that whole change thing we've been talking about, you know, cake, cake or death, cake or death. I'll just choose cake, right? right. Yeah. Well, I, please, please don't make me think about this too hard. Is it difficult to hire... So. Is it difficult? Have you hired any new people? Yes. And was that, was that hard? Because like hiring a guy who clocks in and clocks out and knows he's not thinking and you're hiring him because he doesn't think, but he can use a machine. Like I can see you could go to market easily, but how do you go to market and hire a guy that's like come in and run your own business? Funny enough, Dominic, it's usually the people who are sort of square pegs in the round hole where... Mm, kind of giving up those things that are important to their soul is not really an option for them. So they feel awkward in conventional organisations. They're a misfit. 
Ah, um, so you're looking you're looking for the other people's maverick. The guy the guy the guy who keeps being told his job is not to think. Yes. Could he, yeah, could he, he please, could he please yeah. rock the boat? Could he stop rocking yeah. the boat? Because like managing gets paid to think, not him. And you're looking for them. anybody who's out there, yeah, that thinks like that. Yeah. Can you get in contact with Andrew at Matt Black Systems? <laughs> yeah? yeah. Just remember that Andrew at Matt Black Systems. If you think like that, or you think there's an investment opportunity, or you want to retire from your business, just remember Andrew at Matt Black Systems. Give us a call. <laughs> I'd be more than happy, delighted, delirious to hear from you. So, our, so what we've been doing now is we've been um, we're, we're now in the process of looking out for investments to make to do the same thing to other businesses. We've been working for a little while, um, uh, consulting, just changing other businesses, and you know, frankly, it's it's a bit of a pain in the ass, and it's a bit thankless because because you, you you're trying to do it through other people. You are, and there's there's lots of vested interest not wanting to change. And in the end, you know, it, it, even if it turns out really well, and it hasn't turned out badly, but even when it does turn out well, it's quite thankless because everyone just experiences the the, Negative. the, the negativity of change. So, you know, we've, we're kind of in that position now. We've got this war chest of cash that we're just saying, you know, let's, let's invest. I love engineering. I want to be in, in the productive world in the UK, and I think there's a great future with it, and you, given the productivity we can achieve. Yeah. And what are you going to do with your business? You, is there, I, spoke, I spoke to Chris a little while ago about employee ownership trust. Is that, is that a thing? Or, or is it, yeah, you've, there's no need to exit. It's not taking up your time. No, but I think the, the challenge for us is to give our employees even greater opportunity than to own a business of some sort. So I think acquisition would be better for them than it would, than it would be to involve them in our business. You know, so why not, why not buy something and then they could take a share in that? Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, gentlemen, what is it that you now know, that you know now, that you wish you'd known, wish you'd known earlier? I'll, I'll give you one straight away. Lean. So the lean tools are great, but they don't work very well. And it took me a long time to read Taichi Ono's, you know, the, like the grandfather of lean, a Japanese translation. And right there at the beginning of the book, it says, you divide your business into cells, which are co-located multifunctional teams. And that was it. There's sales, there's accounts, there's everything in each that one of those lean cells. When that same lean technology gets translated through America and, and, and into English, it turns into control the process and you control the outcome. Totally different thing. So effectively what Taichioni did, he created little microcosms of businesses and then those lean tools were picked up because it's the best thing to do. Well, the, and uh, Chinese, Heya, Hater, yeah, the Chi- hey, yeah, you know, they've they've done the same thing, haven't they? They've just that's the they've taken out all of the middle managers and created thousands of micro businesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it works. Look, from massive businesses to small businesses. Funny enough, when people say, "What a radical idea," I say, "Well, you know, given the fact that there's so many one-person businesses in our country, it is the most popular model." Only, is it 98% of all businesses are fantastic? So the model we're <laughs> suggesting is the common one. The only question is, can you get 10, 20, 30, 50 people together 
and benefit from the economies of scale in a network in a networked organization rather than a hierarchy in a, in a functional organization that's all we've done and the answer to that is it's it that makes the internal market cheapest chips to run do i have to answer that question is it, you can now. yeah yeah, yeah. What's, what's your what's your one thing yeah. so the thing that that i kind of struggled with in a lot of turnarounds was the fixed nature of the organizational model. And it's a bit like a fish swimming in water. You don't really know it's there. The water. The water, yeah. And yet it's so controlling of behaviors. People are just adapting to these, you know, the physical structure and the rule set. And I didn't really understand the power of it until we started playing with it. And the answer lay in the organizational model. When we patched the organizational model, which we previously had using lean and agile tools, when we took these tools or the motivation away from these tools, behaviors swung back to that sweet spot we talked about earlier. Change the rule set, go do something radically different, and the behaviors become ra radically different. So the solution to our problems didn't lie in patching our existing organizational model. So lean and agile are a patch, whereas they should be an outcome from a functional, devolved organizational model. So we got lean and agile for free. We didn't need to apply patches because our organizational model was lean and agile. And all that lean and agile as the tools that were presented in the West could ever do was to slow us down and make us less lean and less agile. So the learning for me is lean and agile are, are an outcome and not a process, in summary. Fab. Are there any books that are an inspiration for you or any books yes. that, 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 <laughs> that you think you should read? I'll or? answer that one because I know Julian will say, mm, this is a fabulous book. And um, it's a book by a guy called Rolf Coverdale, and it's called Risk Thinking. It is fabulous. And I'm going to say no more about it. If you can get a copy, you're very lucky. Both Julian and I have copies of it. And it encompasses the humanity of business in the most beautiful form. Read it. If you get a chance, read it. It's fabulous. It's by, what's it by, the author? It's a guy called Rolf Coverdale, and it's called Risk Thinking. I've read a lot of books, but that's my favorite one. So I've read lots of books on you know, alternative business approaches. And a book like, I think it's called The Starfish and the Spider. Have you read, read that? No, no. Okay, Starfish and the Spider is a, about distributed organizations. And um, so spiders, if you pull off a, a leg, uh -huh. you disable it. And if you... <laughs> The unstoppable power of leaders, leaderless organizations, the starfish and the spider. Brilliant. Yeah. So that's a great book. And starfish are different because you can chop an, a leg off and the starfish will regrow a leg. Oh, nice. Some starfishes, the leg that you chopped off will grow into a new starfish. Okay. Because all the bits of the business are included. All the bits yeah. of the starfish are included. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So that's a good book. Um, and there's lots of other books which are, you know, which tell you about leadership, organized, leaderless organizations, all about, you know, putting pictures of dolphins and rainbows on the wall. 
which I don't believe in that. You know, it's a, it's a very, it's not a feeling, it's, it, it's a structure. The difference between rugby and football is a set of rules and, and, uh, and, and a structure. It's, it's not how you feel about it. Okay. But the best book, I think, is a book called Power to the Edge. And Power to the Edge is a book written by the American military, funnily enough, a consultancy in the American military. Can you see that? Uh, yes, Power to the Edge, Command Control in the Information Age. Okay, and that's, that's all about the challenges that the military had with um, asymmetrical warfare, where you've got a network distributed organisation that a conventional army is battling. And it goes to unpick the problems that conventional armies have with unconventional armies. And it talks about all the, the, the um, bandwidth problems they have, all about the speed at which they have to react. And that's just not possible with the lines of communication, the consensus building of decision-making, and then the flowing back of commands to the right point in the battlefield. Yes. And all of that is just impossible. And actually looking back into the 18th century, it was, the you know, for example, the captain of a warship had far much more autonomy than they do nowadays. Yes, because once, once you've left sight of land, once you're 14 miles out at sea, you're on your own yeah, until you come back battle, again. In a battle with all the smoke around, you can't even signal to each other. Yeah. So when, when you know, Nelson said, um, England expects every man to do his duty. It wasn't about being conforming and compliant. He wasn't right. saying every captain should conform and comply to the rules. He was saying every man, given the circumstance they're in, should do the right thing. Yeah. So the word duty has changed over years from individual responsibility and accountability, doing the right thing in the moment, to do as you're told. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And that and that and that that book is is a fantastic exploration of of the the limitations of these the army's traditional hierarchical control of their the, the battlefield, and it really is it reads so well across to to business and any sort of organisation that 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 they they become so complex that they become. They trip over their own feet, if you know what I mean. They become almost oh. intransigent because they start serving themselves internally rather than the demands of the customers. Oh, well, that's and that, that happens all the time. You see that. You get that function created. You get the silo. And, and my example is like if you watch small children play football, uh, you know, you can have the striker comes off and says, you know, it was a win for me today. I scored two goals. The team got, lo- got beaten 5-2, but he doesn't feel the loss for the team. He just, it's, a, it's about the fact that he scored two goals. And you see that in companies all the time. Did some work with a prospective client a couple of years ago and I came out and I said to the CEO, the ops people aren't going to deliver because they don't believe the sales guy is going to sell anything. You've got yeah. a completely dysfunctional team here that they all think the plan is a load of rubbish. And, and what they're trying to do is they're all going to, work they're going to do whatever they need to do so the blame's not on them but they're not going to deliver the plan and he said oh and at the same time most traditional businesses each individual works to become indispensable yes that's one of the sweet spots of any organization a traditional organization is be indispensable yeah yes 
It's a strong. This is all strong pull stuff, though, isn't it? It's like you fighting against your invisible manager. Yeah, but I, come on, I'd like to add a couple of things here, and a bit, oh, of, a bit of a <laughs> self-publicity. So, first of all, we've written a book about our journey. Okay, what's it called? Because you said so, it, you said it very quickly earlier. Yeah, on. It's, it's called it's called Five Hundred Percent. Right. How to pioneers transform productivity? Um, I say it's a good read, but I genuinely think it is a good read. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Matt, Matt Black was a really important experiment because it took what most people are trying to do to to the limit. So, you know, hire, if you take hire, for example, they do it in terms of team, teams. But what Julian and I did in the Matt Black Systems experiment was to take that to the ultimate limit of the, you, you can't go further than the Matt Black Systems One experiment. person, herself. You cannot, you cannot, you, if, once you've integrated everything into an individual, yeah, that's as far as you can get to. And what we proved is you could get there. So in your transformational journey, you know, you can bring your company up into smaller and smaller and smaller teams. What we proved is you can go to the ultimate degree of that, and that is one person being a business, a virtual company within your company. And that's why it's important. Also, we have a website called fractalwork.com, which is a free resource for people interested in self-leadership. Now, self-leadership is different from self-management because self-leadership takes the takes each individual as a controlling mind to choose their own goal, what they want to do, and to choose how they get there. As opposed to just telling themselves so, what to do. So self-management is just you're told the goal, you're told what to do, and then you decide how to get there. So self-leadership is the ultimate in, in, in self-expression, the ultimate goal in terms of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. It's, 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 it's very difficult to argue now that you need a cell of five people. You don't. It's not true. It's very difficult to argue that that actually one person can't be in a business, yeah, can't be in a virtual company and do fantastically well and do everything. Do the sales, do the design, do the purchasing. It breaks all the rules of the sort of reductionistic, sort of deterministic world we live in. So if you can imagine that world was a world of, of Newtonian mechanical, Newtonian mechanics. Bohr, Einstein invented a world of quantum mechanics. And the new organizational structures are more aligned with that integrative, probabilistic world yeah, that we're seeing of today. So the, the shift hasn't happened yet because we're still running our organizations like machines. But slowly the shift is now happening that shift that happened in the world of physics is now happening in the world of business so let me translate that a little bit (laughs) you know what you know know what we'll we'll have to we'll have to come back and do episode two then because uh (laughs) this is this is the longest this is the longest version we've ever done uh, but, <laughs> but, no, it's Sorry. not. It's not. It's great. We've had a great conversation, and and what we've done is we've drilled into some of the the specifics that will be valuable to to people, and so they can get a copy of the book. They can hit the website, and certainly, I know, I know some of our clients will be. You know, some of the challenges that you've solved are some of the challenges that that they face every day. Well, thank you very much, yeah, yeah, Dominic. It's been great. It's been, it's been a really good talk, Andrew. Julie, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Pleasure also. Take care. Mutual. Sure. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.